Hello and welcome to another episode of That's What People Do. You are joined as ever by me, Ryan McGowan, and on the other side of the telephone line, I have James Kay. How, buddy? Hello. How Still are you, here. How are, you, how are you coping with the heat? I'm not. I don't do well in the heat. We started this podcast in the heat, and here we are in the heat again. Yeah, we did. Um, we actually, I think we even discussed it in like our first episodes. We're, there's a picture as well, and I think on our... Um, Oh, Instagram page if you want to head over and check it out of like the first day we ever recorded and there's just there's rolled up jeans there's fucking like shirt sleeves are rolled up it was so hot in that little I think it was the room. hottest day of the year and it wasn't ventilated it was grim no it was absolutely awful really really hot room we had to stop between every episode and just disappear for like five minutes and get some cool air as much as we could try to and now it's full circle it's bloody hot again I mean, we even yeah. we've even put we even postponed recording because it was so hot yesterday. We we're like, we cannot sit down in a room, close everything off, try and get as much soundproofing as we can, and just do it. It's just not. It was not practical. So, no, we've done it this morning, and this should go out this evening, and it should be Friday. So there you go. Um, right. So as promised, um, there's been a lot going on in the world. There are lots of statues being torn down across the country and in particular around the world. And the reason being is uh, a lot of people are finding that these statues uh, of particular people represent uh, negative sides to them. So uh, for instance, in Britain, in Bristol, we had a, uh, a man called Edward Colston. There was a big statue of him in Bristol and he was torn down because he although a philanthropist in the Bristol area back in his day uh, put lots of money into lots of charities, that money was created and brought in by his use and selling of slaves um, using the Atlantic slave trade. So naturally, um, it's built off the back of basically blood money. So the statue was torn down. Now, recently, uh, Sir Winston Churchill has a statue that sat in Parliament Square outside the Houses of Parliament in London. And for years and years and years, which a lot of people seem to forget, James, his statue always gets threatened to be torn down. It is always uh, defaced. I think in every protest, well, not in every, but most protests, he has been defaced in some way. Yeah, there are pictures you can go back as far as that statue has been standing that that statue has been spray painted over it's been smacked punched kicked like everything and now it's just another uh threat to basically have it pulled down and the reason being is because winston churchill has uh in his past um had race racist um thinking ideologies and has quite a lot to say about other nations that aren't particularly britain so what I wanted to do, because we have a lot of people defending Winston Churchill, thinking he is the greatest Briton of all time, and we are not really taught how bad some of his decisions were when we were in school. Do you remember what you were taught in school about Winston Churchill, James? It was just World War Two, and that was it. That was it. That was it. That's all we learned as Britons going to a school in Britain. Winston Churchill saved us from the Nazis. Um and that's all we know about him. And that is a lot of what Brits know about him still. So the idea of this podcast was to sort of shine a light on the fact that there are two sides to this person. And as we have sort of discovered, the longer we've been doing these podcasts is that 
people well initially the podcast was to discuss good and bad people some people that have done brilliant things some people that have done bad things and, and the longer we've done this podcast we've begun to realize that even the best people who have done really cool things sometimes have done things that are quite questionable and those that have done bad things sometimes do things that you would consider to be good so it turns out people are quite gray in in actuality and there's no such thing as good or bad is my conclusion to that so here is our episode on Sir Winston Churchill. I hope you enjoy it. And I shall begin my TED Talk now. <laughs> Sir Winston Churchill is someone observed to be quintessentially British. He is one of the most famous Britons of all time and, in fact, was voted the greatest Briton of all time, according to a BBC television poll. Are you aware of that, James? Uh, I know that people refer to him as that. I wasn't aware he was like elected as it. Yeah, so I think it's in the early 2000s. The BBC did like um, the Greatest Britons, and I think um, Germany did it. We mentioned it in Sophie Scholl's episode in uh, when the Germans did an episode of like the Greatest Germans. She and her brother were in the top ten or the top five, if I can remember correctly, of the best, mm. the greatest Germans of all time. And Winston Churchill was voted the greatest Briton of all time in that poll by the BBC. Now, mention his name anywhere in the world and they will have heard of him. He even has a nodding dog named after him who does a very bad impression of him. So, did you know, though, he was not through and through British? Like the rest of his, I didn't know. So, like the rest of his life, Winston Churchill, the person, is never seen as one man. He's more separate entities that inhabit different moments of history. So we're able to compartmentalize sections of Churchill that suit the narrative intended at the time. Does that make sense? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You take take bits of information that you want. Correct. Yeah. So Churchill is a divisive figure, and what we hope to do with this episode is show that Churchill, although being a famous wartime hero, was a man with characteristic faults and ideas that belong back in the days of old empire. So, let's get into it. So, Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born way, way back on November the thirtieth, eighteen seventy-four in Oxford, England. Now, if Churchill was alive today, he would be 146 years old. Did you know... He was getting on yeah, a bit. Did you know that uh, during the Second World War, Churchill was in his 70s? Was he really? He was. Fucking hell. I, I pegged him at like 50s. Exactly, and I was the same. So... We like we we don't seem to think we 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 imagine Churchill. We've all got the bowl hat, big coat, cigar in his mouth, walking stick, and a big peace sign up. He was in his seventies at that point. He was born in eighteen seventy four. So that's mad. Yeah. Now, as mentioned, Churchill was born in Blenheim Palace in Oxford, which is rather British. And is probably the uh, British answer to the Palace of Versailles. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Blenheim Palace, but I did when I was doing the research for this, and it is splendid in a, in a yeah, word. Really nice yeah. place. Um, young Churchill is not as British as the place he was born in. So, for instance, did you know that Winston Churchill is actually half American? Is he, he really? Is. So his mother was called Jenny Churchill, formerly Jenny Jerome. And she was an American born and bred. Granted, she was um, of the higher echelons of society, so probably wouldn't have had that 
quintessentially uh, American accent, or we all know now. But she was a New yeah. Yorker, and she was a New Yorker born and bred. But she did spend a lot of her time between New York and Paris. Now, her say her home was New York, and she was a socialite, which in today's world means she's famous for being absolutely nothing. But with her friends in high places, such as the then Prince of Wales, who would then go on to become the King Edward VII, and maybe have an affair with him at some point, but that's not today's episode, so we won't go into that. And it was sort of known that Winston Churchill's mother was maybe a wee bit of a hussy, but anyway, never mind. It was through the Prince that she met Lord Randolph Churchill, a hereditary lord and statesman at a sailing regatta on the Isle of Wight in 1873. Do you even know what a sailing regatta is? It's just where loads of people with boats get together, isn't it? Shitload of boats. Like, and just sail their boats. There's one in um, Henley in Reading. They have one every year. It's like Henley regatta, and they all get together on their so? boats. I had to look it up. I had no idea. I'd never even heard of regatta. No, I think you've got to be a certain class of people to go to it, haven't you? I, I can't even say it without putting on the accent. Regatta. Regatta. I say regatta. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too common for my own good. <laughs> so, uh, they were engaged to be married three days later having after after they'd actually met. That's how that, that is how the higher echelons of society work. They like, I like you, and they're like, yeah, I like you too. And then they just get married. Yeah. That's generally how higher class relationships go, isn't it? No feeling. It's just kind of you're wealthy, I'm wealthy. Let's dance together. I have a theory on that, and I'll put it out there right now. It's based on fuck all, except for my thoughts. Um, so don't have a go at us. But do you think that although marriage is sort of a thing today, that I can't remember what country it was, but it's like it has a seventy percent chance that it will end in divorce and actually there's quite a lot and divorce is such a common thing now that when people get married or even a lot of people are hesitant to get married because they're scared that divorce will happen and it will financially cripple them and it will just it will just be a massive clusterfuck but mm. do you think for those of the higher echelons in society those those posher than us those who have that sort of money they're more likely to just fuck it should we get married because it might not mean as much to them yeah, think, probably. I think a lot of weddings back in the day were done just so fa- like rich families could m- maintain their wealth and gather land, etc. Mm. Like, after three days of meeting this woman, Sir Randolph got engaged to her to be married. Yeah, th- there's no there's no feeling there. It would be, oh, you're attractive and you're rich. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, Lin- Little Winston was then born eight months into their relationship. Bear in mind, they met... Three days later, they were engaged, but only eight months after that, they had a baby. Was he premature, or does that not make any sense? Well, now I want you to pretend that you are a late 1800s upper-class citizen of the glorious British Empire, James, where, okay. sex, where sex before marriage is taboo, but we yep. all know it happens, and mm-hmm. to conceive a child before wedlock is the worst thing that could happen, making your child a bastard. You feel yep. like you got the character down, yeah? Yep, I'm there. Cool, so now let's do some quick maths. What is 2 plus 2? That's 4. Minus 1? That's 3. Quick maths. Now, how long generally is a human pregnancy? Typically 9 months. Correct. Now, Winston Leonard Churchill was born 8 months into the marriage. 
coincidence? I think not. He's a bastard. I, well, it's clear that a bit of aristocratic rumpy-pumpy had happened between the two, but to brush it under the carpet, it was explained away as being a premature birth. I mean, that is also a... I think you can be born at eight months. I don't know how common it is, but you I think it You can be born it, even it earlier than that, I believe, but I imagine back then you would not have survived. Oh, no, the med... Uh, yeah, they'd still have access to the best medicine possible, but it oh, still wouldn't... Definitely these it. guys would have, but I suppose even then, the best access to medicine was a bit of bloodletting and leeching, maybe. Yeah, potentially. I don't, so, I'm not good on 1800 medicine. No, neither am I, although I did do a history of medicine in my history GCSE, but <laughs> not so that I learnt much. I got a D, if anyone wants to know, and now I do a podcast where we talk about some sort of historical characters. And we did say it we did say in episode one, we are not historians, we are Wikipedia for your ears. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we are. Yeah. Now, um when actually questioned about himself, Winston Churchill had a very excellent answer, saying, quotes, although present on the occasion, I have no clear recollection of the events leading up to it. Right. Talking about his conception. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much recollection of mine. No, but I think it's such a fun and witty answer that I would never in a million years have been able to have thought of. Yeah. Um, Now, typical of the aristocratic elites of the time, Winston's mother and father haven't really got time to be parenting. So, you know, Jenny, she's got social events to show her face to and... Randolph has got pheasants to be shooting or, you know, the House of Westminster to be playing an MP in. So neither parent was really present at all during Winston's early years. Instead, it was nannies who would rear the child and his younger brother. Um, On a side note, Jacob Rees-Mogg, I don't believe any of his children have actually ever seen him because he has nannies raise his children, doesn't he? He looks like Beaker from the Muppets. He does, doesn't he? Or um, a bit like Walter from Dennis the Menace. Yeah, yeah. He's a, like he's the kind of guy. I say this to my mom. Did you have prefects at your school? Yes. He's the kind of prefect that would stop you in the corridor and tell you to tuck your shirt in, oh, and he... you would turn around and tell them to fuck off. Yeah, he was the hall monitor. Yeah. Have, like, you, got, have you got a the, pass to go face. to the toilet? No. Miss just said I could go. No, you need to have a pass to go to the toilet. I suggest you go back. <laughs> Yeah, the smallest bit of power. He has loads of businesses as well that don't pay taxes, but that is another... Yes, because they're time. situated in Ireland, I believe. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah, fuck it. Anyway, yeah. Anyway. But yeah, isn't it in those kind of families, the father holds their baby once it's been born, and the next time they touch their child is a firm handshake on their 18th birthday. Oh, fucking hell. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. He like, they're like, here you are, here's your son, and he holds it for a brief second. He looks at it, he looks at the penis, and then looks back at the mother and then goes, well done, and then gives it back. <laughs> <laughs> literally it and then he does the same when the child is 18 <laughs> yeah you can have the estate now yeah yeah I will die in a couple of years gracefully and let you have this estate and then watch as his son just destroys it by spending money on <laughs> sex workers and drugs <laughs> yeah that's the dream <clears throat> so these nannies um, were a prevalent part of him in Churchill's life and to his younger brother now the one who really hit it off for Winston was Elizabeth Everest, Churchill's nanny, who would become a surrogate mother to him. Now, she was around for like 20 odd years of his life, so he was, she really was like a mother to him. Now, he appears to absolutely adore his mother, 
despite her distancing towards him, but it really was Elizabeth who was mum to him. You know, like in um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, you know when... Um, I forget the dude's name. Oh, why do I forget? Oh, um, oh, it's like Rondu or something. Yep, 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 yep. Piss me yep. off. And, he, and, he, and he's like, I'm Mary Frickin' Poppins. But then he says about, yeah. he says about um, ego, and he's like, he may be your dad, but I'm your father. Like he ain't your father or something like that. And he's like, yes, no, it's like, uh, he might be your father, but he ain't your daddy or That's something. That's the one. And I got a bit upset. Like I got emotional about it. I have daddy yeah, issues. Yeah, and then so... at his funeral, they play the father and son song. That's right. Yeah. So this is what it's like for him. Although, you know, Jenny's his mum, Elizabeth is his mummy, right? Yeah. And yeah. so Winston said about Elizabeth, saying, uh, quotes, I loved my mother dearly, but at a distance. My nurse was my confidant. Miss Everest, it was, Miss Everest it was who looked after me and tended all my wants. It was to her I poured out all my many troubles. I absolutely adored this woman. Yeah. <clears throat> now, young Winston was sent to boarding school at the ripe old age of seven, but bounced around several schools as he didn't seem to be very academic, and his behaviour became quite poor because of it. Now, that behaviour led to the odd birching. Do you know what birching is at all? Not, no, not So birching all. was a form of corporal punishment that involved whipping the bare bottom of the boy. Well... Yes. I, that seems reasonable. I genuinely forget because I don't read that much Dickens anymore and it's not so prevalent in our day as it was when I was a child that children were beaten in schools. Yeah. At the cane. It's it's mad. It's mad, isn't it? Like, I don't know. I'm sure we all have opinions on that. I mean, there, I don't the teachers think aren't allowed much, to do anything anymore. I don't think there's much opinion needed there. Don't hit children. <laughs> yeah, exactly that, which is why that, that generation was the generation of sit down, shut up, do what you're told, because they're just bred with fear. Totally. And why our generation has been not being hit, so we're the generation of, old on a minute, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Totally. Which is why there's generational divides. I don't go wrong, like, a wee bit of aggression is needed in some instances, but one, not towards children. But when I was an army cadet, and we used to take parade, um, we were always taught by, like, our uh, adult instructors who were, like, trying to sort of train us up or whatever. They were always like, if you have to shout, you've lost control. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's with children as well. It's like, if you have to, like, bend them over and whip their bottoms with a birch, you've lost control of the child. You no longer have control, yeah. and you literally... all you, The only control you have is over their fear. Yeah, absolutely. I do feel that maybe kids should have, like, a healthy fear of their parents a little bit. Like, not in a way that they're terrified of them, but if they do something wrong, they know that their parents will, like... Not not be pleased or something. I don't yeah, know like, how I'm yeah, going like, to define. Well, then, then, there has to be some sort of punishment uh, that that fits. Yeah, the, I, I think a, hel the... a healthy fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like take away the Nintendo Switch and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, because that because when you're young, your brain's not developed as much, and things are a bit more basic. Yeah. So. Yeah, his uh, attitude and behaviour um, was until he was around thirteen. So at this age, when he was thirteen, he had actually attended the Harrow School for Boys, and um, well, he barely got in, considering, like I said, he was not very academic in any way, shape, or form, and his entrance scores were really fucking bad. That he just scraped about, scraped it getting in. Now, so I say, in eighteen eighty-eight, he actually started a Harrow Boys, uh, Harrow's School for Boys. And he began to find a passion for writing with poetry uh, of his um, poetry of his appearing in the local school newspaper, which is totally not a thing and only for like those of a higher class. 
and he also enjoyed history and sports such as fencing. Now, I have a fun fact for you. When Churchill was 13 and attending school in Harrow, guess what was happening in 1888 London? 1888 London. Um, oh, I have no idea. Right, this will prove, like, you know we were saying about how, like, we don't associate Winston Churchill as being that old. When Churchill was yep. 13, Jack the Ripper had only just begun his murderous rampage in the East End, only 16 miles away from where he was going to school. No way, because you associate Jack the Ripper with, like, ages yep. ago. Yeah, like a bygone era that, like, is totally old for us. But yeah, Winston Churchill was 13 years old when Jack the Ripper was around. That's mental. Isn't it? That's cool. Though. I really found that fascinating. And only... It just puts everything into perspective. Like, time is, like... Oh, this is completely, completely irrelevant, but in the concept of, like, how you deci- like decipher different time periods with people, Anne Frank and Martin Luther King were born in the same year. Oh, no way. So they would have been the same age. And yet you, asso- you, you associate them with different time points. I think it's because of the fact that she died as well as basically a child, so we only ever imagine her as such. Exactly, you never think of a growing up, but actually, like that blew my mind for some reason because you just, I don't know, you don't associate people with the passage of time. You just associate them with like events and things. Yeah, so like we say, we know of Churchill through World War Two and to a lesser extent World War One, but it's like actually, which does he and Jack the Ripper? It's have weird quite though. A lot in World War Two, in terms of they were around. World War Two and World War One don't seem that long ago. We weren't fucking there. Our parents weren't there. Our grandparents were probably born just near about, the end of yeah. it. And yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago for some reason, but I think it may be because it gets spoken about so much. It's probably to do with like what is uh, spoken about in the society at that time, so it's still so prevalent to our society and how we live today. Yeah, like we've spoken before, how like when we've played online gaming, and you find like a, like a German kid shows up in the lobby, and the amount of abuse that like they would have got even ten years ago, yeah, you know, is still so prevalent in our society and culture. Yeah. Well, one thing that does piss me off though is when like middle-aged people are like, "Oh, the greatest generation, they fought the war, etc." It's like, why are you taking credit for that? Yeah. <laughs> you were you were not there. Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. So, it seems that Churchill's dad was all too aware that his son was not quite the scholar, but was rather a physical young man. So Randolph had his son enrolled on the military program of schooling, so that he might have some sort of career to be proud of. But, again, it seems that Churchill can't do exams of almost any kind. He tried the entrance exam on three occasions. He explained how, when it came to the Latin section of the exam, he left it blank, except for his name, number, a blot, and several smudges. Now, eventually he... Not good at Latin. No, he's not good. He does not take well to Latin. Uh, But he's quite... He likes writing, and we'll find later on. he, He quite likes writing, basically, things that happen. He's like, he'll write that. He's like, I know what happened. I'll write what happened. And he's also a little bit into fiction, but not as much as he is with writing what happens. Like he wants to be a bit of a reporter. So eventually, yeah. he would pass and was officially a cadet in the cavalry section of the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, which is where all the um, the officers graduate for the British Army even now. So, now Mm. 20 years old, Winston was a lieutenant in the 4th Queen's own Hussars, and Churchill wasted no time in getting himself deployed overseas to see some action, an action he saw. Now, his first stop on the, what I'm now going to call, People Around the World Kill Each Other tour, 
was to observe the Cuban War of Independence. Are you aware of the Cuban War of Independence at all? Uh, no, I'm aware of like the revolution, but I don't know about the War of Independence. Um, if I can kind of sum it up, Cuban War of Independence, Spain was like holding on to Cuba as like this, like like the last sort of bastion of its old empire, being like we are still an empire, like this old man clinging on to his pennies, being like I'm still someone of importance, and everyone's like, no, you're not you're not anymore just yeah. let go and he was like no and then the cubans who were living in cuba were like no we want independence we want to be free from you get the fuck out and then the americans they backed i think uh the independence guys and then the brits kind of were just observing um because that's what we do it happens quite a lot apparently like you get um nations will send observers to war zones and they will just watch <laughs> And I think they're learning and just taking notes and stuff. But yeah, I think that's basically what was happening yeah. in the Cuban War for Independence. And uh, yeah, weirdly, Churchill was following this Spanish army who were fighting Cuban independence fighters. And he only stayed a few weeks, but that didn't stop him getting his hands dirty. Uh, he, for some reason, did get involved, but it doesn't really say to what extent. So that's as far as I have to leave it, really. As I say, he only stayed for a few weeks um, before he stopped off in his mother's homeland of America, where he America. loved it, apparently. He said that it was full of extraordinary people, saying that the Americans were absolutely extraordinary. Um, yeah, for some reason, he absolutely loved it. Interestingly, the, uh, the one other person who lives today who likens himself to Winston Churchill is Boris Johnson. And what is Boris Johnson? Half American, I believe, or is born in America, at least. Yeah, both. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he was born there in New York or something. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I think he was actually. Now, the next stop on the tour was India, which then was the jewel in the crown for the British Empire. He stayed here for over a year and went on three expeditions, one of which involved fighting push, uh, Pashtun tribes against British annexation. Now, it was in India that Churchill began writing more passionately, reporting on events and writing his first book, The Story of the Malaccan Field Force. And this is where he starts just like, you know, reporting, basically. He's writing, but actually it turns into being more journalism, just reporting what's happening. And yeah. then his final tour on the people around the world kill each other was Sudan in northern Africa, joining General Herbert Kitchener. Recognize the name? Your country no. needs you. Yeah, Lord him? Kitchener. Then, then right, General. Okay. General Herbert Kitchener, uh, with 8,200 men to fight a radical fighting... Um, to fight a radical uh, group fighting to overthrow colonial rule from Turkey and Britain in Sudan and Egypt. Uh, however, Mr. Churchill was to act as a journalist only. Lord Kitchener was not entirely a fan of young Churchill and was very aware of his ego and so didn't want him fighting but only reporting. Naturally, when the fighting started, Churchill got involved but it's his relationship with Kitchener that took a blow as well. Uh, Churchill writing about the battle was critical of Kitchener's approach and even how he treated the dead enemy afterwards. Uh, so like the, the leader of the... Um, radicalists that they were fighting at the time was dead and his tomb was almost a bit like a shrine and then Lord Kitchener went over and apparently somehow desecrated the tomb of 
that guy and Churchill was very critical of that and didn't like it apparently now right right young Churchill is a man born into the British elites and has been told all his life that he and the British are superior and with nobody to challenge that idea it seems to cement itself in the mind and becomes harder to change so question was he bothered that he and the empire he was brought up in were suppressing so many people? No. My answers are similar. Probably not, but he's been told that it's a good thing and likely believes it. So I wanted to sort of maybe take these first, like th these couple of minutes now, just to maybe discuss so far what we've heard and what he's been going up to, and then basically that statement in itself. He's been brought up by British elites in a British empire that's telling him that he is superior as is so the British empire and that what he's doing is a good thing is it fair maybe to say of him at that time he should have thought differently it's that's such a difficult question to yes. answer <laughs> because you want him to think differently and you know that it's wrong some people nowadays would still believe that that's correct yeah. But generally, it's, I guess, wrong. But if if you raise a child in a certain way and have them believe something for their entire life, they're very difficult to persuade mm. otherwise. For example, like when a neo-Nazi family has a child, that child will then be raised with the same ideologies and it will be very difficult to get that child out. You see it with the Westboro Baptist Church. People do get out eventually, but generally they are just so engulfed in what yeah, they've been taught. Yeah, and so would it be fair to say that actually it's outside influences that need to challenge your ideology for you to change? You need to become... Well, I suppose he was a man of the world because he went elsewhere, but I think it's vital to go and speak to people in other areas of society, yeah. uh, in all class systems, to get a well-rounded view, which well, I'm a massive advocate for. I think staying in your hometown your entire life is just such yeah. a shame. Because you'll never experience someone else's point of view on life. Yeah, we life. call them little Britons, don't we? People that have never left their country yeah. uh, and only know Britain, and then they have this some sort of this sort of um, superiority about them, saying, "Well, I'm born British, and I've never left Britain. I am British." It's like, mm, no, it turns out actually, your mother was in France the day that you were to be born and it just so happened that you were late by two uh, two days that she managed to get back to England otherwise you'd have been born in France and you could claim dual citizenship <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. like I like it whenever whenever I'm arguing with a racist, I always hit them early because obviously they like to do that if you don't like it, leave. I always like to get that in right. first because then they just get so red and so angry because it feels like you're questioning how mm. British they are and then they'll just flip it round and then they have to try and convince me that they're more British than me, a white British guy, and I don't give a fuck, but it's just funny watching them try with all of their might to show how mm. British they are. Yeah. Because it's just physically impossible. You can't do it. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I find it I find it funny, like genuinely laughable, that we are all born by chance. You know, there's the old joke, you know, people joke about other people being an accident or whatever. You know, like, it's, it's a bit of an ir a, a, a silly like joke and to some it's not funny but like generally you know to joke that someone was a mistake or you weren't planned or something like that generally everything is a mistake right i just so happened 
to be born on this island that is called the United Kingdom, right? As I say earlier, yep. had my mother been in France the day I was born, I would have been born on French land and potentially could have claimed French nationality or dual citizenship, right? It's pure yep. luck where you are born. And it has and I find it I find it For a, sure. amazing how people base their uh nationality and the pride in their uh national identity on pure luck. And to take it back even further, it's pure luck that the human race exists. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, none of us have um, a right to be here. No, no one does, no one does. It's, it, yeah, it's interesting as well that you did say, you know, um, noting that Churchill was a, a well-travelled man, like a worldly man, and, and I, I totally agree with you. He is a worldly-travelled man, but within the safety net of his own empire and people yeah he was always sent there with a duty to protect the empire etc etc yeah so he's not going to he's not going to thailand on a gap year with just a backpack on and spending you know upwards of six months with locals learning their culture and trying to learn the language and eating the food yeah he's going to india surrounded by other white people and the only indians he's seeing are those who work for them yeah exactly so he's not really getting their culture. He's not really getting the idea that they are people of like you know they they've got their own destiny and all this sort of shite. Like he's not seeing this. So yeah, I'm at this young age of like twenty years. I'm I'm I'm, I'm hesitant to say use this when he's in his seventies during the World War Two era. But at this point, when he's in his twenties, when you are young, you are impressionable. You've not fully formed your men, your ideologies and all that sort of stuff. I would, I would, I would sort of lean on the. I think maybe it's a wee bit unfair to demonise Churchill at that point. Yeah, it's it's the way. It's so difficult because we know that it's wrong, and we just want to sit here and say it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's the way he's been raised. He's been brought up with a mm-hmm. silver spoon up his ass. Yeah. Yeah. Us. Has has it? Has he hasn't committed any massive atrocities yet? Has he? Not yet, no. So, no, so, so at the minute he's, his mindset is bubbling in a way that is harmful. But at the minute he's semi-harmless. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He has no real. Uh, although he has gone out um, and uh, been on several campaigns for the British Empire. Um, to what extent he has been violent, um, we don't know. Um, and I think are unlikely to know. So did he um, fight and kill people? Maybe likely, maybe unlikely. I don't know which way and where it is. But yeah, he has gone out on campaign and believes in what he's doing. Yeah, okay. Right, so we'll move on from there. So Churchill now was interested in politics and of course is what really he's famous for. Now, his first foray into the political world was around the time of his world tour. He began to question where he stood politically, which I think you'll find quite interesting. He called himself a liberal in all but name, wishing to totally distance himself from the then Liberal Party. The Liberal Party at that time was having the Irish uh, was for having the Irish rule themselves, but Churchill was vehemently opposed to that. So um, obviously, at that point, all of Ireland was part of the British Empire still. Yeah. And the Liberal Party, as I've said, were for, you know, Irish breaking away, becoming independent, having ruled themselves, basically. 
and Churchill was vehemently against it. He was like, no, it's part of the British Empire. And this is where that sort of that question we were just talking about, that's this is where it starts to go. Mm, can we can we defend him? Can we not? Because even then, like he's been brought up to think this is the British Empire, it's part of it. The only thing you live for is to make it better and improve on it. Um potentially by taking something away from it, you're lessening it. Yeah. We'll leave that there. It's maybe a discussion for another day. But it's also important to mention as well, he was also quite critical of the women's suffrage movement at this young age as well. But anyway, Churchill aligned himself with the Conservative Party and by the end of the 1800s began to perform speeches at party gatherings, making himself quite well known because he was quite a good orator. But it wouldn't be that easy for him. So he wanted to become an MP. And so the Conservative Party made him a front-runner for the by-election at Oldham, which seemed like a safe seat being held by the Conservatives previously, but he lost it to the party he refused to align himself with, the Liberal Party. So, tail tucked firmly between his legs, he took the equivalent of a gap year to India, staying with the then Viceroy. But something was calling. Far off in the distance, around the southern area of continent Africa. The empire was becoming a wee bit paranoid. So do you know anything about the Boer War? Not not massively, no. So, um, simply put, Dutch farmers settled in an area of South Africa called the Cape of Good Hope. Then, the French took over the Dutch empire for a while During that time, the British swooped in and took the Dutch territories of South Africa. Then, the French got their butts absolutely spanked and the Dutch were free of French rule and regained most of its old empire, except for some parts of South America and the southern part of Africa, which was annexed by us, the British. Now, the Dutch settlers that were still living in the area are now under British-ruled South Africa. And they were naturally quite pissed off that the British didn't seem to give a shit about them or even help them. So they moved elsewhere and established new lands for their own. All making sense so far? Yep. Right. Now the Boers, or Boers as we tend to call them in Britain, uh, the Boers were not a fully fledged nation. Remember, they were just farmers who settled in South Africa who have then gone off to sort of make their own place of their own. They're not a fully-fledged nation, and they were struggling to support themselves or fight off native Africans who would raid them, which is fair, because you're in their land. Mm -hmm. So Britain offered to support and pretty much just took over completely, which then pissed off the Boers again, because the Brits have just done exactly what they did before, which is the whole reason why they moved, right? So they went to war with Britain, and they won, it turns out, which was the First Boer War. Now, years later... Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany was being all bestie bestie with the Boers and the Brits were paranoid. So they militarised the border between British South Africa and the Boers' new territories. And when the Boers said, could you please leave, the Brits went, no. And then the Boer War Part 2 happened. Right. Cool. Now, Churchill is 25 years old at this age, uh, this time, and he was on a ship heading for South Africa as a war correspondent for the Daily Mail uh, on a four-month assignment, 
with a shitload of money on him and quite a few bottles of alcohol. Mm. Um, but not even two months in, he was aboard a train with British troops when the train was hit by artillery, which derailed it, and then they were ambushed by the enemy. Now, he tried his best to flee with the soldiers, but he was captured and actually sent to a POW camp in Pretoria. Now, the POW camp was, compared to the British, not many people know about this, concentration camps at the time in South Africa were an absolute doddle. Are you aware of British and concentration camps in Africa? Uh, unfortunately not, no. So, uh, history, or not history, uh, people like to say the Brits were the first to have concentration camps, but I believe it may have been the Americans. But don't quote me on that. Um something I read, and I think it was like about Americans and um, Native Americans, uh, but I think the Brits were some of like the second nations really to sort of did, like take on concentration camps in Africa when we were colonising it. But anyway, because obviously a lot of people like to think of Germany when they think of concentration camps, and actually yeah. there is a long line of nations using concentration camps even before Germany got to the point of using them. Anyway, the Boers POW camps, as I say, were a bit of a doddle. There, you could buy things like cigarettes, you could buy beer, you could buy newspapers, really everything you kind of want, really. It's just a glorified holiday camp, but there are armed guards and you might die. But the British had 40,000 die in their camps of starvation. But, Fuck. you know, empire. Yeah, we <laughs> um, never get taught that. Fucking hell, knowledge is power. No. No, so in our, in our concentration camps in Africa, some 40,000 people died of starvation, whereas the Boers, they'd give you cigarettes and beer and shit. Right, okay, so one side's better uh-huh. than the Yep. Now, Churchill was not about being a prisoner for that long, though. He orchestrated his escape, ducking and weaving, travelling at night, drinking from streams, all that sort of shit, proper bear grills. And Churchill was a wanted man, like he took a chance on knocking on someone's door for help because he was getting desperate. And it just so happened that that man he knocked on happened to be English and he was the manager of a coal mine. So he hid Churchill in the mine with no company but rats until it was safe to complete his 300 mile escape to safety. Now his story was well received back home in England. The son of a lord embarrassing the Boers made him a celebrity overnight. This fame definitely helped him with his political career. He's now like effectively a war hero, right? Mm. He once again stood for the representative of Oldham, and he won the second time around. Now aged 25 years old, Winston Churchill was an MP and was quite a popular one at that. He was young, he was worldly, and he was an impassionate speaker. His first parliamentary speech made headlines, calling out his own party on issues such as their handling of the Boer military commander after the war and his concerns about government spending, arguing for less funding of the army and more to the navy, which pissed off a lot of his own party. Now, it turns out Churchill actually pissed off his own party quite a lot. Remember, he once called himself a liberal in all but name which I imagine is quite common for young 20-year-olds. Like, we're all, you know, we're all in that university age bubble where we're like, we're utopians, and we, like, I think it's called, like, university politics. Yeah. 
the world should be like this. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't work like that. And it's like, no, but it should be. And it's like, yeah, but it's just not how it works. Fuck. Mm. <laughs> like, we all think in utopian sort of styles and like, everyone should just get free this. And it's like, yeah, but how do we pay for that? And it's like, the rich. And it's like, yeah, but you've got to get them to pay taxes. And it's like, we'll get it then. And it's like, yeah, but then they don't want to invest in the country because they'll just take it elsewhere. And it's not that easy. But anyway, he would have, as I say, in his 20s, to call himself a liberal in all but name. So, Sure, he wasn't quite the liberal in today's definition. It is important to stress that. But he didn't seem to be this hardlining, mutton-chop-wearing conservative that we think of today. He frequently fraternised with the enemy, dining with senior liberals. He wrote about his thoughts of the time, saying he, quote, drifted steadily to the left and that he wanted to see a more centrist wing of the Conservative Party to be more in line with the Liberal Party which to me would probably put him in the Liberal Democrats today. Fucking hell. Serial loser. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he sort of he wants to be more centrist and look at both liberal and conservative ways of looking at things. <coughs> now, Churchill would spend the next, and I'm not even joking, 55 years of his life in politics which is a serious amount of time to cover in this episode. And as much as I would love to go into every vote, every speech, and every time he openly disagreed with his own Conservative Party, it would take an entire series on the man. And the man lived for the political world. And I ain't going into it, all right? We're not doing that. We're going to sort of a brief bit. And we'll talk about all the things that make him sort of controversial and stuff like that later on. So we're not going to get into all those sort of votes. But as I say, he lived for the political world. Quotes saying, Politics is almost as exciting as war and quite as dangerous. In war, you can only be killed once, but in politics, many times. Which I think is a great <laughs> quote. Mm. But Churchill did swap parties once. And I think this is a baller move. In his younger days... He was becoming more and more pissed off with the Conservative Party who were not quite agreeing and, and was not quite agreeing with the party ideas and would openly call them out for it, which now would make you a backbencher. Like you're like, nah, get the fuck like you're not. Get out. Yeah. Oh, back then as well, I don't think they had whips. Are you aware of what a whip is? A whip is someone who makes you vote for the way the party wants you to vote. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's wrong, isn't it? It is wrong, isn't it? The, the, the fact because, that... because that's why the political system is so fucked. Because we elect representatives to represent us, but yep. instead, what you're actually doing is electing a party that just vote fucking together. It's just party politics. It's bullshit. It is party politics. Yeah, which is in a sense wrong. Um, we vote for people to represent our respective areas, and then they go to the House of Commons, and they are supposed to then represent us in the House of Commons. But the problem is, is they are part of an overall larger party who has its own um, wants and needs, and it will argue for those moreover than the local, smaller base, regional. It's because they want areas. to keep their job. That's essentially what it is. Yeah, um, we can go into that a little bit later on. But yeah, as I say, Churchill at that point, there was no whip. Churchill was not being told to where to vote. So a lot of times he'd vote against stuff that he just didn't like, which I, I'm, I'm so for that. Like, stick to your fucking guns. You don't like it or you don't think it's good for your constituency or whatever like that. Don't fucking vote for it. But no, 
I'm, I'm here to represent these people and I'll represent them. I don't think it's good for them, so I'm not going to do it. They've, they've put all their faith in me, so no, I'm not doing it. And I like that. And he pissed off the Conservatives on quite many, quite a few occasions. And on the worst of occasions, <laughs> he rather dramatically simply got up and he walked from one side of the House of Commons to the other side where the opposition party, the Liberal Party, was sitting. Bloody hell. Yeah, he simply just walked over and then joined the opposition briefly. <laughs> he was like, fuck this, got up, walked across and sat down. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you are aware of um, the House of Parliament. Like, picture it in your head, right? You've got yep. uh, government on one side, the opposition on the other side. In the middle, you've got the green carpet, remember? Yep. Do you recognise or remember at all that there is a red line that is rather close to the benches on either side? Yeah, I always just assumed that was like, don't stick your legs out over the line. You are correct in that. So, did you know that that distance between the red line on one side and the red line on the other is the exact same distance as two sword lengths? Is it really? Is it so people couldn't fucking kill each other back in the day? Exactly that, yep. So you had to stay two sword lengths away from each other so that you couldn't have a fight. If you if you had your weaponry or something like that, if, if there was weaponry of sorts, you couldn't fight. You can't get to each other in that instance. The idea is to stay away from each other and have a, like, a political, civilised discussion and a debate. That's crazy. It's that's, cool, that's isn't cool it? Fact, it's a cool fact. So yeah, Churchill um, is now uh, defected from the Conservative Party to the Liberal Party. <laughs> Uh, now, here's an opinion section uh, here. This is purely my opinion. I'm not entirely certain about party politics. We did just briefly go over it, but I did mention that we'd talk about it later on. Let's say I'm not entirely certain about party politics. We have this uh, conservative, uh, traditionally for landowners, rich, middle class. And then we have Labour, the counter to that, representing the working people and the poor. Now, why do we still have a party system? Would it not be more beneficial for a government of unity? So no parties, just people who represent all walks of life serving their country. Now, if I was to elaborate Yeah, just on independence. That, yeah, so you basically you just have a, shit, a house full of independence. There is no such thing as a party. There is independence. And there is no such thing, say, as a, um, uh, a government that is Labour or Conservative. You have a government that is um, elected amongst the independents in the house of parliament and say um say like they amongst themselves they would I, i'm literally reckon redefining the way we do politics in the country on a whim right now so bear with me if i'm like not got my words right so you've got like literally i think we have 600 mps they're all independents they don't vote they don't necessarily uh stand for any particular party then you have 600 mps in the house of parliament amongst those 600 um, you need a prime minister. So then we, amongst those 600, people can fucking put their name in the ballot. And then they tell themselves, because we've voted for these people to represent our area, so we've put our trust in them to uh, vote for the right person, right? And then out of those 600, we'll find a prime minister. And then that prime minister has to, amongst them all, f create a government of people that he thinks will be the best people out of those independents. And then you'd surely you'd get a mixture of people that represent the rich, some people that represent the poorer, some people who've had a better life, some people who've had a lesser, uh, better life. Wouldn't that make more sense rather than it being party political? It sounds ideal, but then am I being I, I utopian? Think it would just become a mass. It would just become a massive popularity contest as opposed to policies. Damn it! I'm being university politics, aren't I? Yeah, it's a really nice idea, and party politics does need to change, and the way we do things in this country does need to change, but I think I think there's holes in that that need to be addressed. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Yeah, but no, I, I I like independence. I think it's cool. Like, just someone that represents people and not a party. Yeah, I like it too. Because then you can't have whips. No. No, I think we should probably get rid of them anyway. Yeah, that's really bad. But then, like, say, for example, Bojo puts up a debate and then, I don't know, Matt Hancock votes against him. He's just going to get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah, or, you know, like, Keir Starmer got rid of Rebecca Long-Bailey. Yeah, that was an interesting move. I think it's a very Machiavellian move. Uh, I think in terms of electability, it was a fantastic move. Totally, 100%. But if those of you listening to the podcast don't know anything about it, I suggest you go have a look at it and you'll probably realise why he did it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's very loose anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism nonetheless, and it gets rid of those anti-Semitic links that plagues Jeremy Corbyn. Yep, and he did say he would get rid of anti-Semitism in the party in any way, shape or form, and so far he seems to be cracking on with it. Yeah, and a lot of left-wing pundits don't like it, but fuck him. Even as a left-wing myself, fuck him. Yep. Anyway, so Churchill's changing of teams came at a perfect time. The Liberals, who he had now just joined, had won an election, and weirdly, they made Churchill a government position um, of Undersecretary of State for the Colonial Office, which is basically like the Foreign Office today, but for the colonies. Mm. Right, okay. Now, it would allow for travel to the other countries, which he loved, and plus um, there's a little power play in there as well, which is something he would also quite like. Now, some things he did were help draft a constitution for the Transvaal region of South Africa. That was the Boer state once at war with Britain. Uh, The constitution was to be fair to Boers and Brits alike who were now living together, which is, that's good. That's good that he did that. He helped do that. Yep. Now, uh, another was to have indentured Chinese labourers phased out from the region and expressed his concern with how natives were being treated by colonial settlers after the Zulu nation had rebelled, saying the Europeans behaved disgusting butchery of the natives. Uh, I just this dude is so confusing. Yeah, so I said a lot here. So um, during uh, the time of South Africa with the empire, we had a lot of Chinese labourers, indentured servitude. Uh, so they're not slaves; they are paid, and it is for a particular time. As we did mention in our Harriet Tubman episode, we did differentiate between slave and indentured servitude. Um, indentured servants are paid, and it is a contract they will finish in a particular time. But it's not brilliant pay, and the conditions aren't also brilliant. Um, but there is an end in sight, whereas like with slavery, there wasn't. It's your life. So, yeah, there was a lot of Chinese labourers during this time doing indentured servitude. He tried and got that phased out, sort of more for locals, and I think maybe. Um, and then, yes, also the Zulu Nation, which was still a thing at that point, because we've uh, had Zulu Wars recently at that point, um, which reminded me, I watched Zulu the other day, and it's an awesome film. Um, with Michael Caine. Michael Caine, yeah. Um, yeah, so the Zulus had rebelled at that point and the local colonial settlers at that point were also not not treating the Zulus natives as best as they probably should have been and so, as I say, Churchill's uh, description of them was that they were, there was absolute disgusting butchery of the natives, the way they treated them so yeah, it is confusing, isn't it? Yeah, he like he says all this, which sounds great, but then we know of the shit he goes on to go and do. Yeah, yeah, he's like, like I said, he's a man of many, many faces and contradictions. Yeah, well, we're gone now. Churchill would marry in 1908 to Clementine Hosier, 
and they would remain that way for 57 years and they would go on to have five children with only one not making it to adulthood. Now Churchill went mm, through okay. several government positions during the Liberals' time in office. He was president of the Board of Trade, he was Home Secretary, which is a pretty established one, and finally he was First Lord of the Admiralty, which if you do know anything about World War I, you'll know is a big deal for him. And First Lord of the Admiralty is the last position we will see Churchill at for this episode, because World War I is about to kick off, and Churchill has got a lot to do. And that is the end of part one dun, dun, dun. of Winston Churchill. Oh, part two is going to kick off with a war. Part two is going to kick off with the Second World War. And do you know anything First World about war. Um, uh, the Dardanelles or Anzacs or basically us fighting the Ottoman Empire? Um, You know, I don't. I don't. I don't. Interesting. Well, World War Two is more my area of expertise. World War One, I'm a bit hazy. Mm. Well, uh, for any of you guys listening, if you are also interested in World War One at all and you'd like to know a bit more, uh, check out on YouTube. There is a great channel called The Great War, um, which started in 2014, and it followed World War One week by week, 100 years on. So as I say, it started in 1914. So the, episode, the, the YouTube channel started in 2014, and it, it followed it parallel, 100 years between if that makes sense, week by week, really what, cool what happened in that week. And it went on for four years straight. It was hosted by a guy called Indian Ideal, who done such good research. And it was really, really, really interesting, really in-depth. And it was like, it, it literally finished in um, 2018. Um, and it was it was, it was was glorious. It was fantastic. But yeah, if you are interested in World War One, you want to know a bit more about it, check that out, um, which is where I'll be heading to for research about the Dardanelles and Churchill's more, uh, Churchill's, uh, role within that theatre of war in that time as well, so I'll be heading there. So yeah, um, so far, what's your thoughts on Mr. Churchill? He's he's an interesting individual, isn't he? Because some of the stuff he just said and did was very respectable in terms of helping uh, Chinese labourers and uh, creating peace in South Africa, etc., etc. But I don't know because. Uh, I suppose if you don't know about church and you went for part two, like I just know all the shit that he's about to do. Yeah, and I'm and just very confused as to he's why he's. Yeah, his mind just suddenly like, how can you be for the um, liberation of one uh, demographic of demographic of people and then be so vigorously against another? Are you talking about those Chinese labourers? Yeah. I'll be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure he's about it being liberation. I think he's more thinking um, economics. Right. I don't think he's doing it out of the kind of his own heart for them. I think he's just doing it because it would make sense. He's just thinking about what, it economically. logically. Yeah, right, he's okay. thinking about it logically rather than it being a passionate. No, that's not fair. It's not right. He's more thinking, eh, it'd make more sense to do it a different way. Get rid of them. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'm assuming next episode is when we see his like claws come out a little bit. Next week we will start to see a few more of the claws come out. Yeah, as you put it, uh, we will still we will start to see some claws coming out. Obviously, we are starting to see what Churchill can be like as a war leader, and how he may not necessarily be the best war leader yet. Cool, because at the minute he's just a he's just a guy who was born in privilege and has lived in privilege. 
Yeah. I, I do think as well, we have to have it in the back of our minds at all times during this episode. The world that he lives in changes so quickly in his lifetime on just just alone. Yeah, and, very and good I point. think what we will realise and sort of I hope I am able to get across during this episode as you're listening, guys, is that Churchill's world around him changes so quickly that I'm not entirely sure he's able to keep up. And I think there I'd, is the problem yeah, a lot of the time. I think that's fair to say. I think that's the case nowadays as well. The world develops so quickly, like people get left behind very easily. Oh, Christ. I mean, in in a, in a way, it's not so dramatic, but like, you know, there are kids now today who don't know what a VHS is. Yeah, exactly that. And if I, like, give my grandparents an iPhone or something, they don't know what the fuck to, to do. Exactly. Whereas exactly. whereas if I gave, like, you a brand new iPhone, you'd know exactly how to set it up and everything. It's just, it's just natural. Mm-hmm. And how often do we have to tell our grandparents, no, you can't say that anymore? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, I don't know. I think everyone... Ha- I like to think that everyone has a duty to keep up, especially with things like that what you should and shouldn't say and ideas etc etc like when we're older i i hope that our generation does that mm, i hope so too okay then guys um i hope you've enjoyed this episode as part one of winston churchill uh join us next week where there will be a part two and we will finish off uh, i hope if i can get it all in one episode uh winston churchill's story um what he gets up to in world war one uh why he's so famous in world war two and then his death, and hopefully either in next week's episode or we may do it in a smaller, shorter episode, we will be discussing uh, reasons as to why Churchill is um, sort of... Um, I've lost the word. I've lost... A, devi- a divisive character. A divisive character, to say the least. And not defend it, but try and discuss it and why he thought that way, maybe, and why he acted that way. Things like that. That's what we're going to be discussing. So... Look forward to that, guys. Join us next week when we will be talking about that. Um, Cracking. Yeah. All right, then, guys. Um, thank you for listening to this episode. Oh, make sure you hit us up on all the social medias. I always forget this. Hit us up on all the social medias. Follow us on Instagram at That's What People Do Podcast. Find us on Facebook at That's What People Do. Or actually, if you just type in That's WPD, you'll get it still. Uh, find us on Twitter at That's WPD. Or if you have any suggestions for anyone you'd like us to talk about, someone that you think is really cool and maybe you've like thought, these guys are stupid. They'd never have thought of this guy to talk about. I think you guys should talk about this person. Send us it via email at That's What People Do Podcast at gmail.com. Um, me and James have some homework to be doing. We have a film to be watching in a couple of weeks' time that has been a suggestion to us, which we're really looking forward to talking about at some point. So there's that. So proof it does work. Um, Brilliant. Oh, make sure you please rate and review us on all of your platforms as well. If you have like iTunes or whatever platform allows you to rate and review, please send us a couple of stars or even say, oh, these guys are kind of cool. I like listening to their podcast. You guys should too. That would be really, really helpful for you, uh, for us. Uh, for you, I suppose so, because it would keep us doing the podcast. But for us, brilliant, because it would help us keep doing the podcast. Um, yeah, we'd really appreciate it. So if you could, that'd be fantastic. Anything else, James? No, I think you've covered everything. Brilliant. All right, then, guys, we will see you next week. Catch you later. Bye-bye.